I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Daniel Strain. This is KGN News, How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 19th, 2015. And I want to welcome and introduce Daniel Strain, the science writer who's just joined the How on Earth team. He's a great addition. Ah, thanks. It's great to be joining you. I'm looking forward to talking about science up here in the Front Range. As we will. And coming up, what to do about all these neighborhood cats killing so many birds. We'll hear from Dr. Amanda Rodewald of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And do you know any good science jokes? We'll hear, we'll, we'll hear later from Dr. Peter McGraw, a psychologist who studies, studies the roots of humor. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Take a drive over the Rocky Mountains and you will be sure to spot stands of rust-colored pine trees that have been killed off by bark beetles. Now a new study takes a closer look at one of the hidden consequences of this insect infestation, greenhouse gases. Bark beetles are a group of bugs that burrow into and chew up trees. Since the 1990s, they've gone on a rampage, destroying millions of acres of pine and fir forests across the western United States. The effects are visible in states like Colorado, but there are repercussions you can't see, too. When the trees die, they release gases like carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, the same gases that contribute to climate change. So in recent research, scientists used survey data and computer analyses to estimate the carbon footprint of bark beetle infestations in the West. It was a hefty toll for such little bugs. Based on the team's calculations, the beetles caused the release of as much as 15 billion metric tons of carbon each year between 2000 and 2009. To put that into perspective, over the span of a decade, that was enough carbon to match about a tenth of the emission the country produces annually from burning fossil fuels. It's one more good reason to limit the spread of these insatiable insects. The researchers reported their findings last week in the journal Global Change Biology. Future spacecraft engineers and other budding scientists appeared last week in Pittsburgh at the awards ceremony for the 2015 Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. The competition draws high schoolers from across the world who've taken on research projects in fields such as chemistry, cellular biology, and engineering. This year, five gifted Coloradans were among the grand award winners that were feeded in Pittsburgh. They included Jesse Zhang, Logan Collins, and Elliot Gorkowski from Fairview High School in Boulder, and Stephen Parrish of Colorado Springs. Trevor Jordan, a 17-year-old from Animas High School in Durango, took home a $50,000 scholarship from West Virginia University for his project. He explored a new design for an airplane wing that cuts down on drag. Congrats to these stellar Colorado students. And in science news of the past, on this day in 1971, the Soviet Union launched its Mars 2 orbiter into space. The spacecraft would go on to snap new images of the Martian surface and recorded temperatures on the red planet ranging from negative 166 degrees Fahrenheit to a balmy positive 55. If modern space, space exploration is more your thing, you can see a screening of the film Back to the Moon for Good this Friday, May 22nd at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder. 
The movie follows the exploits of private teams that are racing to win the Google Lunar X Prize and $20 million in prize money. All they have to do is land and pilot a robotic spacecraft on the moon. Spring is in full swing in the front range. The new leaves and grasses are neon green. Tulips have peaked, and fruit trees are blossoming everywhere. And birds wake us up before the crack of dawn with their spring choruses. This is also a time when many birds are laying eggs and waiting for their chicks to hatch. At this time, they're especially vulnerable to predators. The biggest single threat to birds by far happens to be this favorite fuzzy household pet. Yes, cats. Here to discuss some of the threats to birds and their habitat and how humans can help to curb the feline threat to these birds is Amanda Rodewald. She's an ecologist and director of conservation science at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. It's a mecca of sorts for bird academics and all bird lovers. Dr. Rodewald, welcome to How on Earth. Great. Thank you, Susan. I'm really happy to be on the show. So glad to have you. So let's just start with the numbers. I was stunned when, I think it was last year, I was taking a walk with two bird-loving young nephews, Tyler and Brendan, and we're walking around the neighborhood and one said, I hate cats. They kill more than four billion birds a year. And then he goes, well, I don't really hate cats, but I just wish people would keep them indoors more so that they don't kill so many birds. So granted, household cats aren't the cause of all of these, but what, what do the numbers look like? Like how bad is predation from cats. Right. Well, it's, it is surprising to a lot of people the impact that cats can have. So we know there have been many studies, you know, smaller studies or regional ones that have been conducted over you know, the past couple of decades. And some recent work analyzed all of those in concert and found that an average of 2.4 billion birds are killed by cats every year. Um, but the number could be as high as 4 billion. I mean, so what that means is that cats are the single greatest source of human-associated mortality for U.S. birds. Um, But let me just, I want to also just put a little um, caveat on that, just to recognize that habitat loss and habitat degradation are, in fact, the greatest threats to birds if we look, you know, across the world and even in the U.S. Um, But in terms of a single source of mortality, cats seem to be having um, you know, the greatest impact on the birds in that sense. Oh, that's a really interesting point. So in terms of so whole effect on whole populations and species, it's really habitat loss and degradation, among other Absolutely. things, but that's by far the biggest. But when you look at singular birds, particularly in cities and suburbs and places where lots of humans are living, it's really cats that are the biggest source, right? Right. They're the, yeah, they're the biggest source. And it's not limited just to cities um, and neighborhoods as well, because there are a lot of um, feral cats um, that even occur in very natural areas like parks um, and outside of cities. And they can be contributing, again, to those high mortality numbers as well. Right, and so in a place like here in the Front Range in Colorado, uh, I see lots of robins, including one who's sitting on a nest in our front porch. But what, what are some of the other common or, or less common species? 
Um, in in that area, a lot of people are probably seeing um, other birds like morning dove and you know, northern flicker, um, maybe some exotic species like starlings as well. People will see a lot. Um, so there are you know a number of these backyard birds um, that are that are pretty common. And if you live near parks, you know oftentimes you'll start picking up a lot of um, other species like maybe orioles or um, you know that are those brilliant orange birds that we see nesting. And are they in fact most vulnerable now when they are laying and, and hatching chicks? as the chicks are fledging, or when are they especially vulnerable in the spring? Right, they're, they are most vulnerable now. And usually a lot of the cat predation um, is taking nestlings you know, right from the nest and birds when they leave the nest. So that period after a bird leaves the nest, those first few days, you know, they don't know how to fly well. Um, they don't know how to evade predators, and they're very vulnerable. And a number of studies have found, you know, even in places away from, you know, cities or, or intensive development, that they're up to maybe 7% of the young birds that leave the nest can die. But definitely that's when a lot of these cats are having a huge impact. But you said up to 7%? Of the birds? 70. Some so I was going to say, show, 70. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that, right. that big mortality rate. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. So let's get to... So a lot of this, it seems it is the domesticated household cat that's just jumping on the nests or waiting to pounce on them as they're learning to fly but can't quite do it. Is it really just a mix of feral and household cats? Right. There are, right now, the estimates are that there are about perhaps 90 million cats that are kept as pets in the U.S., and probably about the same number of stray and feral cats. So we know both are having impacts. You know, cats are predators. Um, there have been studies showing that their, you know, interest in, I guess, um, taking birds or hunting isn't affected by the fact that they're well-fed. So even a well-fed pet that's let out can actually take birds um, because, you know, that's an that's a hard-wired um, behavior, right, to be a predator. Right. Boy, there's been a lot of press around the impact of wind farms on cats. I know there are a lot of single sources of these threats. How do cats compare when you look at, yeah, compared to wind farms, be it the turbines, right. be it the construction from them? Sure, and it's interesting, and I think here's where we have this example of where familiar threats, just don't seem as scary or worrisome, oh, right? right? So we're all used to our cats. We love our cats. You know, I'm a cat owner. Um, but wind turbines are new, right? And we're very concerned about the impact they may have. What some studies have shown is that actually cats are responsible for about 10,000 times the number of birds killed as due to wind turbines. Wow. So it's staggering. And if we look at other you know, human-associated um, causes, you know, cats are responsible for about four times the deaths as um, with um, birds killed by collisions with windows, about ten times the number of birds killed by um, colliding with vehicles. Um, so it's, they really just, you know, other, all these other sources of mortality are dwarfed by the impact. Well, and not to minimize those sources. And, of course, on the engineering front, things no, are, are right. being altered for the wind farms and other things. Why don't we jump to um, possible solutions? I mean, no one's going to suggest 
not myself included, open season on cats. We all love them. But what are some of the things that people can do living in cities or in the country? Well, the biggest thing that people can do and really have a positive impact on, you know, the birds, you know, providing good habitat for birds in backyards is simply to keep your cats indoors, right? It's simple. That doesn't take, it's, you know, no cost and not a lot of effort. Um, And that's something that's not only good for the birds in the yard, but it's also good for cats. You know, cats, when they're ranging outside, they can face a lot of different hazards. They can be hit by cars, attacked by other cats or other animals, exposed to um, harsh weather or to poisons. Um, They can be depredated themselves, right? We know um, that coyotes, for example, will take cats. I've um, got and a friend also, who's a three-legged cat because of that he, very problem. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. And, um, well, I have a colleague who studies coyotes and said sometimes you can tell when uh, coyotes have moved into an area because you start seeing a lot of missing cat signs going up. Oh, my gosh. Um, right. Um, and also, yeah, disease as well. So, they've, you know, there have been, um, you know, the veterinary community has found that Cats that go outdoors oftentimes live less than five years, whereas ones that are indoors live about 17 years and are thought to be much healthier. So it's something that we can do not only for the birds, but also for the cats themselves. So that's a huge, a huge contribution each individual can make. And where can people go to get more info? I know um, American Bird Conservancy has this Cats Indoors campaign. I think the Cornell Lab is involved as well. Yeah, the, yeah, that Cats Indoors campaign has a lot of really useful information. Um, it's a great source where people can get, um, you know, access it online. And if you just Google Cats Indoors, it'll pop right up. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Amanda Rodewald, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. That was Amanda Rodewald, Director of Conservation Science at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology at Cornell University. You're tuned in to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Daniel Strain. Have you ever laughed at something you know you shouldn't have, like when someone you know falls down the stairs? Our next guest, Dr. Peter McGraw, might be able to tell you why. He's a scientist who studies the roots of humor, why we find some things funny and some things not. He's a quantitative psychologist at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he heads up the Humor Research Laboratory, or HURL. Pearl. He's also the co-author of the book The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny, and he will be speaking this Thursday, May 21st at the Science Lounge, a monthly event at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. This month's event will explore the science of humor. Dr. McGraw, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so we all like humor, uh, but can you tell me why you as a scientist are interested in exploring it? Well, in part because we all like humor. Uh, that is, this is one of the, the most valuable and ubiquitous psychological experiences that people have. You know, we, we pursue it in our consumption lives, how we spend a Friday night. We, we pursue it in our personal lives, the people who become our friends and, um, and sometimes ultimately life partners. Uh, and then also, it's something that, while 
tends to be a very good thing can also be used uh, to hurt others. And so when you, when you put all these things together, it becomes a topic that's worthy of scientific study. And so humor is about a lot more than just the entertainment we seek out. I know my wife and I first bonded over some mutual jokes. Indeed. It, it actually uh, is uh, when you're laughing at something and the person with you is laughing at something, not only is it creating positive emotion, but it's, it's actually telling the other person, oh, this, this person gets me. You know, I, we see the world in a very similar way, and as a result, it, it's a great indicator of whether people are going to get along well. Hmm. So you develop what's called the benign violation theory. Can you tell me how that adds to our understanding of humor? Sure. Uh, the question of, of what makes things humorous, is it's an age-old question. It, it actually goes back to, to Plato and Aristotle, and, uh, and, and frankly, People way smarter than me have been have been trying to crack the humor code for for 2,500 years. The benign violation theory, I believe, is a is a culmination of of these great thinkers' ideas. It's putting these all together uh, and essentially says that that we laugh at, we're amused by things that are wrong yet okay, things that are threatening yet safe, things that are confusing yet make sense. And it's, it's that laughter that signals to others, oh, this violation is benign. So the obvious example would be the somebody falls down gag, I guess. Well, yes, except that, that not every time that someone falls down is it amusing. So, so obviously the, the violation is very clear there, right? People, people normally, you know, walk without, without tumbling down a set of stairs or falling off a ladder. What has to be there is a is their appraisal, the, the, the notion that that person's okay, or um, that in some way maybe that person deserved that, that bad incident. And in those kinds of cases, that's what transforms what would normally be a really upsetting, serious situation in one that is, that is fun and funny. So you mentioned that humor can also hurt, too. What's happening when people react poorly to, say, a stand-up comedian, someone like Louis C.K., who recently got a lot of flack for a monologue he gave on Saturday Night Live? What's happening there? Well, one of the things that's happening is the recognition that we all see the world in different ways. That is that even kind of good-natured humor attempts Jokes that are, you know, that are meant to, to amuse, as Louis C.K., that's his job, is to, is to make people laugh, sometimes fall flat. That is, uh, they create a situation that's boring, or in the case of Louis C.K., sometimes creates a situation where a violation is not benign. And, and in the case of his recent Saturday Night Live monologue, lots of people found that funny, but others didn't, in part because they're probably not regular Louis C.K. listeners. So his particular brand of comedy, uh, it's, just, it's just not okay in the eyes and the ears of these, of these people. So it's about expectations, I suppose. It is. Well, you know, so the idea is that, that what you and I see as wrong and what you and I see as okay may differ because of our culture, our own personal experience, essentially the way we see the world. And that's why, going back to your, your earlier point with your partner, is that um, 
the, the more alike two people are, the more likely they're going to share the same sense of humor because they see what's wrong and what's okay the same. The more people are different, the harder it is to find that commonality. And it, it's why comedy can be this sort of moving target, and it's why sometimes uh, a humor attempt can help and sometimes it can harm. I see. And you've done a lot of traveling, especially for your book. Do you find that the uh, how do different cultures approach this uh, benign violation line? Well, yeah. So, uh, so Joel Warner, my my co-author, and I, a Denver journalist, we we travel the world to try to, to to understand this complex topic. You know, you need the laboratory, but you also need to see this thing and its you know and its complexities. So, what we found was that the things that tend to be kind of universally funniest are those things that are physical. That, so things like slapstick and tickling and play fighting. And, and part of the reason for that is that you don't need language. You know, so, so babies, children, even apes, chimps, and bonobos uh, laugh when engaged in these kind of physical styles of play. What we found was that the things that didn't travel very well are things that are very culturally specific. So, you know, jokes about, you know, your government, jokes about things that are unique to a particular culture. And so at the same time that people can seem really quite different, you can also very easily share a laugh um, without even speaking the same language. And uh, moving on to the event this Thursday, uh, as a humor researcher, do you find that you're under added pressure to try to make your scientific presentations funny? I am, and I'm failing terribly in this interview right now. I'm sorry for that. No, not at all. Not at all. We're talking about science. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did. I did. Should note that you were also uh, the website Futurish ranked you as one of the most stylish scientists in 2013. So I'm sure that that's one of the uh, your your top uh, achievements in life. I know. I, I, I won that award in part because of my frequent uh, use of a sweater vest. Um, maybe I'll, I, I've been trying to retire the sweater vest for a few years now. I, perhaps I'll dust it off for Thursday night. <laughs> Sounds good. Dr. McGraw, thank you so much uh, for talking to us this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Peter McGraw. You can see him and his sweater vest Thursday night at the Science Lounge at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. The event will include science improv and cocktails. It runs from 6.30 to 9.30, and tickets are $10 for museum members and $12 for non-members. Susan Moran is our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Bobby Day and Vusi Manasela. And Beth Bennett is our engineer today. Special thanks to my co-host, Daniel Strain, for joining the team and co-hosting as well as writing headlines. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Daniel Strain. And I'm Susan Moran.